is for World of Work podcast with James and Jane. Hi, this is James. I wanted to let you know that as well as these podcasts, we deliver at least one free online seminar every month that you're welcome to attend wherever you are in the world. You can learn more about them and register for them via our website, www.worldofwork.io. That's www.worldofwork.io. Hello and welcome to another episode of the World of Work podcast. We are here today with Helen Bailey from Strategy, a consultancy in the UK, and we're going to be talking about the topic of evidence-based learning and really diving into the need for evidence in the design and delivery of learning and development programs and our development in the workplace. Before we get into that, though, Helen, could you introduce yourself and say a little bit about who you are and your background and what you're doing at the moment? Absolutely. So I'm Helen. I'm the head of learning and development at Strategy Solutions. And we're a business consultancy, as you said, James. We focus very much on the creative, the marketing, the people. We sometimes describe ourselves as like the Avengers because we have a group of experts willing to come in and support and help businesses. My background is L&D throughout. I've done it for more years than I can care to remember. And I had a spell for quite a long period of time as an interim specialist. I've worked in all kinds of industries doing all kinds of things. Brilliant. Thank you. Today, we're talking about evidence-based learning, and we're going to explore a little bit about it, and we're going to talk about some of the specifics and why it matters and what it means to people and try and draw up some lessons for individuals in the learning and development space, but also individuals in organizations leading teams or organizations. Before we try and do that, though, I'd like to start for basics. What is evidence-based learning? What do those words mean when they all come together? It does what it says on the tin, really. It's about making decisions based on the evidence available. Now, when we're talking about evidence, it's really important. It's a bit about organizational data. It can be about the literature, the research in that area. It can be about knowledge of practitioners, because obviously, to a certain stage, you have a lot of experience. And it can be about the experience of your stakeholders. And that kind of leads me into my favorite word, which is triangulation. So you take three sources of evidence. And if they're telling you the same thing, that's probably what's going on. And that helps you just make much better decisions. Yeah. And I guess if we think through that learning journey or the learning process, if we think about the evidence base, do you start by trying to understand needs or how does that fit in? What's the starting point of bringing evidence into what you do? absolutely starting to understand the needs. I think it's so easy for people to say, I was talking about this morning, actually, I could go into any organization right now and I'd get asked for two things, time management, handling difficult conversations. Those two things always come up. The time management is never about time management. It's never about people being able to organize themselves. There is something else going on there. So I think what you're doing with evidence-based learning is you are really digging deeper into what is really going on. Sometimes it's described, and Kevin Emiates describes himself the L&D detective, yeah. that you are really getting to the bottom of the problem. You're really looking at what is going on in that situation. Yeah, that's really interesting. Something that, that we find a lot and that we've started to yeah. push forward into our conversations with clients is that we find that quite often people come to us with a solution. They say, hi, yeah. we've got this solution. We'd like you to implement it. And sometimes we say, maybe, why don't we talk about that? But quite often we say, why? I think that's a really great question. And I think as I've gone on in my L&D career, that is a question I use more and more. My favorite example is team building. People will often say, oh, we want to do team building. I'll say, why do you want to do that? What do you want to get out of it? And then they'll say things to me like, we want people to have a nice time. And I say, we want people to have a nice time. I'm really not your woman for that. If you want learning outcomes, absolutely. But go bowling, do whatever, go out for a meal. That's having a nice time. There's a huge amount of benefit for going out with a nice meal as a team. But you don't need to bring somebody in to do that as a special handholder for your meal. (laughs) Why is it that we need to talk about evidence-based learning? Why is it that this is 
an important topic. What happens if we push towards evidence-based learning? I think being really straight and open and honest about it, I think we could be wasting our time. I think we could be doing the wrong thing. And I think there's, I've been reading a lot of research this week, which talks about how busy L&D people are. And one of the reasons that they're not able to get into the data and the whole evidence base is that there's too many competing priorities. So given that's going on, it, it seems to make sense to me that we really focus our time and energy on things that really matter. Yeah, I used to, at various points, I've done different things in my life. And at one point, I spent time with builders doing construction stuff. And they always used mm-hmm. to say, measure twice and cut once. Yeah. And that's a fairly common phrase, but I think it fits really well and it seems to fit well here. You said there's a risk of doing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Could you like elaborate on that a little bit? What happens if you don't understand the needs or if you make an error in deciding what's appropriate and try and deliver something like that as a solution for a client? What are the sort of impacts of that? I think it's about credibility. I think internally, and we deal with a lot of external clients, but if we deliver something that is not suitable or doesn't meet what the client needs, I think there's a lack of credibility and it becomes to be about a lack of trust in the organization. And I think also it demonstrates one of my pet hates, which we might come on to later, is people who think that L&D is pink and fluffy. And it's that piece about you go to an L&D event, let's call it that, the person sprinkles their magic fairy dust, you come out a completely different person. Well, the reality is that that doesn't happen. If you want to be credible, I think we have to be doing something where people go, this is relevant to me. This makes a big difference to me. And I can see how I'm going to apply it back in the workplace. It was useful. Yeah. And that comes back to something that we might touch on a little bit later, which is around measurement of outcomes and to Mm. figure out back to the question, why are we doing this? What is it that we want to achieve or change or create or sustain as a result of this? And to the point of going out for dinner, if you want to have an outcome as everybody feels full, then let's do that. <laughs> it's perfect for that, it's isn't perfect. it? Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. If we step back a little bit, we've mm-hmm. been talking here about about evidence-based in learning itself. And we've started by looking at the front end of that process and understanding the needs of an organization and the need to focus on the right thing. But I'd like to think about learning more broadly. We hear a lot of phrases about learning. We hear about phrases, a learning mindset, sometimes applied for individuals. We hear phrases like a learning organization coming out of various other sort of of frameworks out there. However we speak about organizations, why is it important for organizations and people in them to be able to learn what happens if we can't do this? Oh, that is a big question. Uh, I love the answer. My favorite type. (laughs) (laughs) I think just to add to your definitions of learning culture and all the rest of it, I think Dr. Hannah Gore has a really interesting one that always sticks with me. And she talks about a learning culture is where people access learning without without having to ask for it. I think that sounds absolutely great. And who wouldn't want to work in that? And I think as we move into the world where we're talking more about a learning ecosystem, we're talking about SharePoint sites, internet, whatever it is, LMSs and all the stuff that goes with it, that becomes increasingly important. To answer your question, what happens if we don't? There's a great quote, isn't there, from Deming, which is, it's not necessary to change. Survival is not mandatory. The world is constantly changing. Therefore, I think it's really important that organizations learn. And again, I've been talking about this morning, that quite often we don't. We're so busy doing, we don't take that time or the opportunity to reflect. And I think it's become very apparent that the organizations who don't do that and therefore the functions who don't do that do not survive. Yeah. And do you see in your sort of work with client research a difference across potentially different sectors or different global geographies or different functions within organizations in relation to their propensity to be more focused or more agile in their ability to learn? Or do you think it depends on other factors? 
I think it depends on a lot of factors. I think it depends on the leadership of the organization as well, whether they're in that space, whether they're in a more proactive or reactive space, whether they're thinking more long-term, short-term. I think in the pandemic and following the pandemic, I don't think we fully really explored what post-pandemic will look like. And in terms of the impacts of that, I think a lot of businesses took a very short-term view. And I think what you're starting to see now, I went to my local high street last week. I've spent a lot of time working in retail and it's a very different place now to what it was. And that was not being able to adapt to those particular circumstances in that moment. Yeah, certainly it's what's it, it's February 2023 now. I yeah. always got to check the calendar. And we're up here in Scotland and Edinburgh and the Edinburgh, the main shopping streets of Edinburgh are different as well. That, that really brings to life some of the changes in the broader business ecosystem we're in. What do you think some of the impacts or benefits to individuals when they learn in the workplace? How does it affect them in terms of their experience of work and other rewards or benefits it might bring them? I think for individuals, learning can be transformational. Effective learning can be transformational. I think that's a word I would definitely put in front of that. We talk about, we have a model of learning. We talk about a strategy which is called reality learning. And we talk about things that are relevant and they make a difference to the person. They transform how they think. We do a lot of work as well in the quality diversity space. And sometimes that can be quite hard learning for people because there's a lot to take on board there in terms of what am I having to challenge my thinking quite a lot. And I think sometimes just the process of attending an event, and I always think that if I'm delivering an event virtual or face-to-face, if I can make people just think about one thing a little bit differently, then you have made a difference to them. Yeah, I think that's a nice way to think about it. And I think my own sort of personal reflection a little Mm -hmm. bit on this is that well-being and mastering new skills, growing and development, Mm -hmm. many people is inherently motivating and supports our well-being and things like that. So I think it's clearly helpful for organizations as they face into skills and challenge gaps and develop their capabilities. But I think there really is that personal piece that can be helpful for individuals as well. Question for you. There's (laughs) clearly a lot of benefit to taking this evidence-based approach to our interventions. So thinking at the front end about them and looking a little bit at that sort of needs piece up front. And then at the end, doing some backward looking, a backward pass over what we've done and saying, Have we achieved our goals? What are the measures? And checking it in the middle. Why don't we do it? The million dollar question. (laughs) (laughs) There's a couple of things. I think interestingly enough, 94% of organizations want to measure. That's the benchmark. But then there seems to be wants to, but is able to. And that seems to be linked to some of the resource available to do that. And I think the first is time, which we've referred to. I think the other one for me is I always talk about nobody got into L&D because it was a spreadsheet and some numbers to look at. People didn't get into it for that. They got into it because it was about the people and it was about having really complicated and very interesting discussions. And I do wonder as well if that kind of nobody got into it for that means that there isn't the capability in organizations. Kevin M. Yates, who I've referred to already, talks about people in L&D who are really into numbers. He refers to them as unicorns because rare. Most people didn't get into it for that. Yeah, it makes me feel pretty good. I've gone the other way. I'm an accountant <laughs> by trade, so maybe that should be me. Though, to be honest, I like the conversations and the complexity and the problem solving and the engagement. But I think you can have numbers. both sides because yeah. I would say my colleagues at Strategy will absolutely say the thing that I love to do most is facilitate the conversation and really have that in-depth conversation. But I'm also really interested in what The numbers tell me in terms of, if we talk about the bigger ecosystem, what are people looking at? When are they looking at it? How long do they spend looking at it? That really tells you 
about where people are at and what's driving their motivation to go and look at things. So do we do more of that? And I always talk a lot about if we do something and it doesn't work, that's fine. We do something else. But we use that evidence to help us with that decision. As long as we're learning on the way, then if we're making intelligent mistakes, then that's okay because we build everything on the past failures. That's got to be. I love the the sound of it. Sorry, I was going to say, I love the sound of intelligent mistakes. I like that. I'm going to steal that. (laughs) (laughs) I make many of them. Some of them are intelligent. (laughs) We talked a little bit about the sort of needs assessment at the beginning Mm -hmm. and understanding that. If we get to the stage where we're clear on our needs and we've agreed what it is that an organization is looking for from a learning perspective, how do we at that stage start to look forward or bake in an evidence-based process. Do we need to start doing things at the early sort of design stage? How do we start to think through from there? I think the earlier, the better. I think we don't Uh think about it enough. If you take the classic evaluation thing is give it out two minutes before people are due to go home and running out the door, which is your sort of your classic. I think my first pointer for this is really think about what the business is looking for. Talk to your stakeholders, think about return on expectation. What do they expect to see? And what are the business measures relating to that? and capture that. So you can talk about that at the end, because I think that gives you your benchmark. And I think also we need to get better at the language we use with our learners. I think quite often we'll talk about what your key takeaways from the session. Yeah, lovely. I think the better question for me is, what is your key takeaway and how are you going to use it back in the business? So really strong about applicability and We really drive back that this is about a business intervention. I think we really need to get our line managers on board, really have conversations. They are the people who see this happening. Really talk to them about what are they seeing differently and whether you inbuild it into an appraisal or any of those things. But they are able to see those measures. And I was talking to somebody earlier this week about a management development program. And at the end of it, so the classic thing is you do a presentation which is this, what I've learned, all that kind of thing. And in that organization, they were doing TED Talk. And I just thought that was such a great idea. And something something a little bit different. And I think when we're talking about your classic evaluation and how they're going to use it, I think we need to be more, less form, more. We almost make it a training activity. So it becomes part of the session. For example, at Strategy, we use three questions and we do it on Menti and we do it at the end of the session. It becomes part of the session. And as a group, we then talk about what you've taken away to use back in the workplace. So there is a discussion about it. So it feels more tangible. Yeah. And just for clarity, Mentees, a sort of whiteboard group, word cloud platform. You talked about a few things there that I'd like to just touch on a little bit. You started by talking about linking learning interventions through to business metrics. I just Mm -hmm. thought it would be helpful if you could maybe call out a couple of the types of metrics that people might benefit from through effective L&D? I think it really depends what it is. I think we do a HR skills program. So yeah. Definitely with things like that, we'd look at disciplinaries, absences, has yeah. that rate gone up and down, those kind of things. I think from a management development point of view, we do tend to use a lot of 360. Yeah. So we do a 360 at the beginning, we'll do a 360 at the end. That kind of tells us about shifts in behavior and where people are coming from in that point of view. I do think there is nothing like getting some real live immediate feedback in the moment quite often when we do our sort of longer programs in the middle of that I'll sit down with people and say what's going well for you what have you been able to apply what's going not so well and we have a real adult to adult honest conversation and I do think a lot of what happens in evidence-based LMD is around that it's just having some real sort of stand-up conversations and say what's this impacting is it not and if it's not what do we need to do now 
And I like that mix of quantitative and qualitative that you've called out there in terms of metrics. And I think you can do your surveys at the beginning, surveys at the end. You can look at business metrics, be it, like you said, your number of disciplinaries or Mm -hmm. excess hours worked or whatever it happens. You can find these and track them as well as survey-based outcomes from direct reports of managers or so on. But the qualitative conversations are so powerful and they can be an opportunity, in my view, to cement and further embed your learning anyway in a sort of coaching approach as well as an exploration. Just by having that chat. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which is nice. Now, something else that's in my mind is with some of these things people might want to look at. For example, if you invest in your managers, you might improve retention. Lovely. That's a great goal. (laughs) How does one navigate causation, (laughs) correlation? How does one do, or do we just need to have a pinch of salt and say, hey, we're chucking the right pebbles in the right wells and hopefully making the right splash? How do we (laughs) hold ourselves? comfortably through that. So back in the day when I used to deliver CIPD programs, we used to talk something about judgment. If you do, and in your case, where you're talking about retention, so we assume maybe that 40% of the reduction in retention or the increase, in re- you don't mm. want to reduce retention, you want to increase yes. it. And 40% increase in retention is due to some line manager training, taking what I would call a bit of a finger in the wind approach with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You don't necessarily know. And I think this is one of the problems, I think, with return on investment, which is always mm-hmm. felt like the holy grail of L&D. Do mm-hmm. we get that? Because so much else happens in the organization apart from L&D. So, you know, the HR example I've just given, it could be there's been a new policy. It could be that, that there's a new management structure. Whatever it is, that also could have impacted. I don't think there is an easy answer to that question, if I'm really honest about direct causation, I've been able to say that L&D has made a direct difference. But I think what you can talk about is L&D has contributed. Yeah. And I think being able to hold on to that ambiguity or uncertainty and be directionally confident in what you're doing, I think is helpful. Just as an aside, as people know, I used to work in a finance function for a a large financial services Mm -hmm. organization. And we couldn't quantify our contribution as finance. (laughs) Like our holy grail was, how does finance add value? And we're like, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> we spent loads of time trying to do that as a very numeric discipline. So it's interesting. The thing that's in my mind is quite often as we go through any of these stages, whatever it happens to be where we set objectives and go through reality and then look back at what we've done, we're so much more informed at the end of a process than we are at the beginning. Yeah. And the goalposts shift and the world moves and things change. How do we keep ourselves comfortable that we are working in an evidence-based way even when looking back retrospectively, it can be possible to look at things differently. How do we make that okay for us ourselves? I think we have to be really careful about being responsive and thinking in the moment, where are we with this? And I think we've outlined a bit of a process where we talk to stakeholders at the beginning and we talk to stakeholders at the end. And there has to be much more regular checkpoints than that in reality. Because as you say, the world is moving, the organization's probably changed, particularly when you start a quite a large scale intervention. So it is about checking in regularly with your stakeholders holders and making sure that you are checking the relevant source of the data. The CIPD, whoever you choose to follow in the L&D world, produce reports nearly every week. This week, I've managed to read two new reports before I came to speak to you and keeping an eye on that kind of literature. And there is something for me about L&D people being constantly updating themselves. I think you're only as current as your knowledge. If you don't do the sort of research, the further reading, it very quickly becomes outdated. Yeah, it's a fast-moving space, isn't it, in terms of the thinking that's out there? What pitfalls do you see? What are some of the traps that people can fall into when they're maybe thinking about doing this or starting to look at measuring and gaining evidence over their interventions? 
My favorite one is the data wheel of death. I love that. I think that's oh, yeah. a great. Say more question. about this. <laughs> the data wheel of death. Yeah. Sounds like a Star Wars thing, doesn't it? Yeah. It does indeed, yeah. But I think sometimes we think we have to have all this complete data to get started. And actually we don't. It's better to start and then build on the data you've got rather than waiting until the perfect moment. Because you know what? There never is a perfect moment. There's never a perfect moment to say, let's go. I think sometimes you need to start collecting data and evidence, and then you realize what else you need. So yeah, sometimes okay. you need to start the process. Sometimes we get lost in maintaining data that we don't really need. And I think we need to be better at jettisoning stuff that isn't serving us anymore. That was quite a lot. I've collected a lot of data. I've got halfway through and thought, I'm not even using that. Let's just ditch it. Yeah, and that's a trap I see in many different industries where the production of data becomes an industry for no benefits. We're not using it in a meaningful way. And I can really see that as a pitfall that exists. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say my other one is we focus on the wrong things. If you take evaluation, which is a form of evidence in an organization, I can't remember how many forms I've seen that ask about the trainer was engaging. Did you have a nice lunch? And it's not phrased like that, but you know what I'm getting at. Really? And my favorite phrase for this is Michelle Parry Slater, and she says it's not about the biscuits. And I think, yeah, she's absolutely right. (laughs) It's not about the biscuits. And also, I don't think it's about the trainer either, because those hard messages, and I was listening to a podcast the other day, and they were talking about actually learners aren't always in the right place to evaluate the learning. Because if it's been a really tough, challenging session for people to think about, they're not necessarily going to have had a good time, are they? They're not necessarily going to say, that was really useful. (laughs) That's going to find it. And then my last point is sometimes I think we focus on intention rather than action. Say a little bit more about that. So I think sometimes we talk to people about what are you going to do with it? I intend to do that, but we don't follow that up. We never find out if they ever actually did that. All we know is that they intended to do it, which is great because usefulness of applying the learning is important, but I'd really like to know if they did it or not. Yeah, and that's (laughs) something that we see in lots of global surveys and all kinds of things. People would do this and I really will. Who has done it? It's a very different type of piece that comes up. You were speaking there about feeds a little bit into the timing of the gathering of that sort of look back data. How far in the future do you go? I mean, the examples that you've talked about there seem to imply that a lot of this data gathering can be done at the end of a training session. And as you said, people might be in a funny state then. How far into the future do you go when you're looking at these metrics? How far is it reasonable to say that you'd have an impact or does it depend on the training that you're delivering? How does that work? If you think really powerful behavior change takes time, And it's not always going to be immediate. And I think if you talk to people, it is a good idea to gather it at the end. But I also think a more powerful measure to three months, six months down the line, because people have had time to really think about it. And also, I think just by the fact that you are asking people about that learning again, it refreshes it in people's minds as well. And it brings it back. So that helps embed it further. So you get a double hit there. Get the, oh, gosh, yes, I went on that learning. Oh, I remember that for whatever reason. And then people start to fight because you get the recency effect, don't you? That I've done it. So I suddenly, let's say I've been on a coaching course. So I go back to work and I start talking in all this lovely language about what are your goals, James? And all that kind of thing, you know what I mean? And then after a bit, you start to go, so what do you want to get out of this? Because that's the way you normally. So I think it just gives you a bit more, I've had time to embed it and I've thought about it, but it also reminds people about the learning. Yeah. We have the same view of that type of asking of questions. And I also think like everything's an intervention, right? Yeah. That's you give someone a survey and that can change people, right? All of these things are connected, which is interesting. This is clearly 
important. Mm -hmm. Understanding why we're doing stuff matters. Measuring it to know if we've done it well matters. It helps us understand what works, what doesn't, make things better, improve things for clients, improve things internally. One of the things we find is, as a consultancy, Mm -hmm. a lot of the people we work with, one, as I said earlier, they come to us with a solution and say, we want you to do this. And we unpick that and work through what are your problems and go from there. But also, nobody wants to pay for evaluation. <laughs> and I how to navigate that? I reflect that. Absolutely. Completely. I think there is something about we are a business consultancy in the same way. The reason we do the evaluation work is to provide further evidence for our clients. So do it in terms of this is what we've given you over the course of the year. I think it's, there's a real conundrum for me about organizations don't want to pay for it. The actual words that I wrote down was there is gold in them, their hills, which is like a reference to some kind of weird movie a long time ago. But there is such a richness in that available in that. And I would also, if you took it down a kind of continuous improvement route, like cost benefit analysis, there is so much that I think organizations could learn from that. And there is so much that I think we tend to share is conversations with our clients, because I think what it does, it helps inform the other fundamentally at the end of the day. And I think, James, you might recognize this. If people don't want to pay for it, they don't want to pay for it. I don't want to pay for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you put it on a piece of paper as an option, quite often they'll say, oh, let's not do that bit. But even in organize, you know, when I've worked oh, in organizing, yeah. yeah, even internally, I've been the one that's been interested in the stats and I can mm. produce all the lovely graphs and everything you want. And people have gone, Yeah, yeah but know. how were the biscuits? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Were the biscuits any good, Helen? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Maybe the lesson is we should divert the evidence to the biscuit fund and then everyone will be happier. <laughs> Maybe that's yeah. the lesson. I've got a question as well on this, but something I mull over a little bit, which is the role of experience. We've talked there about measuring outcomes and things like that. Sometimes my sense is that the creation of a good or stimulating experience in itself can affect an individual yeah. in a way that's helpful, even yeah. if it's hard to pair that up with specific aspects mm -hmm. of a content being delivered, of a message being delivered. The way that something is created and facilitated as a learning experience can almost be the driver of an output in itself. About How do you feel about the importance of an experience or change? I totally agree with you, actually. And that's not just because I'm here, James. But I think I've certainly facilitated sessions which were, we used to call them a bigger conversation, and it'd be on a particular topic, let's say equality, diversity, those kind of things. But the whole team is sat there having a discussion that they would not normally have in the workplace and starting to ask some really what are considered to be tricky questions? What does a wedding look like in your culture, for example? And some of the feedback from those kind of sessions has been so rich because people just went, that's the first time we've ever had that conversation. And I think we'll have that conversation more as a result of this. And I think it's a great example of a learning intervention, if we call it that, of an intervention, which doesn't really have clear measurement apart from what you've probably got is the team working more effectively together. And that sort of event is transformational for that team because yeah. suddenly they're having tricky conversations, which means when they get to the tricky stuff at work, we're going back to our having difficult conversations, which nobody can have, then those tricky conversations are easier because we've had this really difficult conversation and it was okay. You've done a bit of re-benchmarking of difficulty. You've given people practice. Yeah with facilitators who are guiding you or supporting you through some of that, that can be helpful. Another thing I find 
I've not looked for evidence on, but I just feel to be the case mm-hmm. is that sort of environment of a learning space where it is facilitated. Individuals can feel pride, they can feel agency, they can feel hope, can feel an ability to improve their experiences and those around them. All those sort of positive capital aspects, positive emotions, positive reflections that can go with that can grow out of an experience, even if it's sometimes a bit separated from the content. So the way that you do things can bring all of those benefits across yeah, the that, content. As we would say, very in the bit of the North that I come from, that's right up my street. <laughs> I have a particular, I sometimes refer to it as a style, whatever you want to call it. But I strongly believe in the power of positive emotions in a learning environment. I think it's really important. And whether that's about sweets, chocolate, or having little, there's those balls you throw about whose name I can't remember in the moment. Yeah, sweet balls and all that stuff. Whether it's about engagement, whether it's about the way you do things, I'm not incredibly formal in mm. that sense because I don't think people can learn if they're tense I think if people yeah. are sat there going like oh that's really hard learning environment and I think just to see I think we were doing emotional intelligence a few weeks ago and I played past the parcel and just yeah. something that is a little bit different I think people remember things that are a little bit quirky and a little bit different and it helps root that learning the people who came to that session the big thing they can remember is that they played past the parcel but that starts the process of remembering the other stuff. And I I just what is if it's okay, James, to pick up on something you said about just having those conversations. We did a menopause session a few weeks ago. Some of the feedback around that was that it was just great to be able to talk about it in the open. Actually, when I was doing the research into that session, I felt a little bit sad because there there was a lot of talk about women who'd not had the space to do that. And I think I come away from that session and I actually just felt quite proud that people felt it was okay to have that conversation and just And I think that was a transformational experience for some people in that room because some of the feedback talked about, I am going to be more open about this going forward. Yeah, I can't. The power of that. And it helps create role models. And when there are difficult topics like menopause or aspects Mm -hmm. of diversity or mental health, and we were speaking before about neurodiversity as a mm-hmm. substrand that a lot of for many years has been going on with. But again, it's a topic. I think creating spaces where people can speak about things like this sometimes requires the gentle guide rails of a facilitator to create that experiential space yeah. where it is permissive and it's okay and it's safe or it's risk-free or however you want to. Or you can just ask it. that that awkward question. Yeah. But then I, I also feel that in those spaces, I think sometimes the facilitator has to give something of themselves up if you show that you are willing to be vulnerable and willing to be able to talk about some of this stuff in the menopause yeah. chat and i shared some of my experiences yeah. then i think that encourages that environment and yeah. i don't do it because it's all about me i do it because i think if people can see that i can do it then anybody can do it yeah i think that's a great point and i think we could go off into a different well, conversation about the allergies of, facilitating. we've got a whole other conversation now jay yeah yeah how do you manage yourself as a facilitator doing that because it's costly yeah. energetic yeah. anyway we can do that some other time if we're thinking about this. People are maybe considering if in their L&D practices or in, if they're in a consultancy or if they're in an organization, if they're looking at starting to bring a little bit mm-hmm. more evidence into their own organizations and their interventions, where would you suggest they start? Have you got suggestions for reading or things they could do? What's the starting point oh, for people on this journey? I've got a massive suggestion for reading. So in a sort of, what should we call it? 
a bit of self-promotion. You can go and read my blog. <laughs> Yeah, our numbers and unicorn. But I would definitely start with the work of Kevin M. Yates, absolutely, because that's great in terms of, and also on his website, he has a whole section which has loads of templates, which are really useful. So I definitely go for that. I definitely have a look at the CIPD's evidence-based practice section. I think internally, I definitely go and talk to your stakeholders if you haven't done so already, find out what they're interested in and focus on that, because that's a really good start. I'd also say ask better questions. I think sometimes we've talked about the why question, but I think we need to start really digging down into what's going on and not be satisfied with the first answer. Why is that going on? What evidence do you have for that? And let's start talking that language. Let's stop talking about learning outcomes and let's start talking about business impact. The language we use is so important. When I was doing my CIPD and then here we're talking many moons ago, they were talking about that then. And yet here I am many years later, let's go with that, (laughs) many years later, still saying we should be talking about this. It is great. But business outcomes is what the business really matters, really values. Yeah. And I guess that's why big commission learning and development to achieve yeah. outcomes. And I'm not originally from this function, but it's easy to see the minimizing of some of the language, but learning and development and organizational development and even wider aspects of HR use about themselves, which I think mm-hmm. is interesting. Okay, I think we're pretty much at the end of where we are. In the interest of time, I'm going to wrap us up just to move us on and close us out. One last question. How can people learn more about you and what you're doing? They can find me on LinkedIn. There are many Helen Baileys, so you need to find the one who works at Strategy Solutions. That's quite important. And it's strategy with an I. I just signpost that because we do that quite a lot. We do a lot of events as well. So if people want to go on our website and you can come and see us in person and we do some virtual events as well and we'd love to see you there. Brilliant. It's just time to say thank you, Helen. That was wonderful. Thank you for your time and your contributions. Thanks, James. Hi, it's Jane. I just want to say thanks for listening to the whole episode. If you enjoyed it, if you have a question or if you just want to say hi, you can find us on Twitter at worldofwork underscore IO. Don't forget, you can also find out more about what we do, including our online seminars, workshops and development programs on www.worldofwork.io. 